This is the Concast, the podcast about the Indian Constitution, the Supreme Court, and beyond. Hello, everyone. Thank you for joining us on this inaugural edition of the Concast. Today, I'm in conversation with Surit Parsarthi. Surit, goodly evening to you. How are you? I'm good. Thanks, Gautam. It's uh, court is on vacation here in Madras, uh, so we've had it. Uh, Nice and easy to a certain extent over the course of the last few weeks, and we're all ready for reopening week, which is coming up soon. Well, I'm glad we're in a good week because I spent my last week in a bit of despair because Arsenal, the football team I support, had imploded in characteristic fashion. Not that that makes things any easier. I mean, I can only say that I've uh, you know spent a whole season in despair. Uh, well, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I can, I can, I can empathize. Um, and I was I was getting my catharsis by listening to the um, Arsenal podcast, and it struck me at that time that following Arsenal is a lot like following the courts in the sense that there are moments of joy, quite a few tears, and it's the hope that kills you. Uh, so I thought that just like the Arsenal podcast gives me catharsis, perhaps you know the podcast about the Indian Constitution and the courts would also play the same role and that's the origin story of of the contest um so i think yeah let's let's um, let's dive straight in we are going to be looking back at the month of may and some of the important judgments that um, that came out in may uh, and uh, let's start with a case that i think everyone's really aware of it's the sedition case so you know as as you know the constitutional challenge to sedition that um, was filed a few months ago, and it suddenly came up for hearing uh, earlier this month, and there was an order passed on May 11th by a three-judge bench of the Supreme Court, uh, headed by the Chief Justice. So I think uh, before we discuss this order, which is pretty a pretty curious order, let's just get the basics out of the way, right? So I think that that we agree and. And I think there's little doubt about this that as a matter of constitutional law, the sedition provision that is section 124A of the Indian Penal Code is very evidently unconstitutional because it criminalizes the spreading of disaffection or bringing the government into contempt or hatred, all of which essentially are states of mind or, or feelings. And um, under Indian constitutional doctrine, to restrict free speech, you have to show a clear link between the speech and public disorder. And there's no mention of that link in the text of the section. In 1962, in the Kedarnath Singh judgment, a five judge bench of the Supreme Court tried to draw out this connection by saying that the section only covers speech that has a tendency to create public disorder. But that effectively rewrites the section because there really isn't, you, you really can't bring that in without just completely rewriting the provision. And and of course, what then follows is that the section says one thing, a Supreme Court judgment says the other. On the ground, the section will be implemented by, by the police, by magistrates. And when they go wrong, the effort that it takes to correct that, you know, by going up in appeal and so on, you know, is, is a lot of effort. So, despite the fact that the Supreme Court tries to, you know, rewrite section 
to make it constitutional itself an impermissible task, the effect on the ground is, is not really uh, showing. So I think that that is something we really don't need to spend uh, too much time discussing. I think we're clear about that. Um, and of course, people disagree about you know the constitutional case, but I think it, it's there's, there's little profit to re-arguing or re-discussing that all over again, um, which is why I'd like to focus on this order, um, because what this order basically says is that it's it it attempts to uh, prevent any fresh proceedings that governments may take under this provision. And it says that if any fresh case is registered, then the parties can approach the concerned courts for appropriate reliefs um, and that all pending trials, appeals and proceedings are to be kept in abeyance. So I guess I want to ask you, is this a stay on the provision? Is this effectively a stay? Is this something short of a stay? What exactly is it? Yeah, I mean, I think it's, I, I would read it as a virtual stay on the provision, and I think there's no other way to really read it. And But before we sort of get into the uh, language used in the order itself, uh, I, I think we also should be conscious of the fact that uh, the reason why the sedition law was challenged, again, despite it having been upheld, as you said, in Kedarnath Singh's case in 1962, is, I mean, at least two or three reasons, right? One the Supreme Court's own reading of the fundamental rights provisions of the Constitution has undergone quite a substantial change since then. We've seen in recent judgments about, uh, uh, you know, where the court has held that fundamental rights do not sit in separate silos and that penal laws can, in fact, be struck down on the basis of imprecision in their language, vagueness in the terms. We've seen that in the Shreya single case, for example, where uh, Section 66A of the Information Technology Act was struck down. So we've seen the jurisprudence of the court going through quite a change. So I, I think the court now, when it was hearing these fresh challenges, if it was to hear it in a substantial manner, it had two options. And I think this is something that you've pointed out as well in your uh, piece on the blog, which is it could have either constituted another bench of five judges, to, which will then sit and decide whether Kedarnath Singh requires reconsideration, or in the alternative, the court could have heard the challenge and then said that Kedarnath Singh was decided incorrectly, what lawyers like to describe as a ruling rendered per incurium, uh, or in other words, a you know judgment that was rendered either in ignorance of earlier precedent or of uh, some legal provision of the other. So these were the two options that were available before the court sh- had it chosen to hear the matter in full. But I think uh, perhaps what the court itself might see as slightly fortuitous circumstances, the union government filed an affidavit in court in which the government said that it was willing to re-examine the sedition provision. So so this possibly gave the judges some sort of an avenue to fashion an interim order of the kind uh, which it has ultimately done, which is to say that let's not undertake this exercise of uh, looking at the constitutional validity of 124A again, that the court has prima facie taken a view that uh, there is a problem with the provision and that it almost said that, uh, and in fact it records so in the order, that the government also appears to be in agreement with this prima facie view, although I, I don't think the government quite states that in the affidavit itself. 
and and we don't know ultimately what the government might do after it reconsiders the provision. It might choose to keep it in its present form. It might choose to amend it in some form or the other. But I think what the court is really telling us now is that look, for the moment, let's keep this in abeyance because we're all in agreement that there are fundamental problems with the provision. Uh, tomorrow, if the government on reconsideration repeals the provision, then the court doesn't have anything left to do. Perhaps it might still need to uh, re, you know, uh, consign Kedarnath Singh for the purposes of uh, jurisprudential clarity. Uh, it, it might need to consign it to history in some way or the other in a subsequent judgment. But at least it doesn't need to reconsider the validity of 124A if it is sort of effaced from the statute books. But on the other hand, if the government and parliament were to say that, look, we're we're going to continue to keep the law as it is, or, or or it makes amendments which continue to be problematic, then the court can always step in and reconsider the provision. So having said all of this, what about the order itself? I mean, the order, as you said, is not worded in a manner which suggests that there's a stay of the provision. Uh, uh, of course, presumption of constitutionality doesn't perhaps apply to uh, any longer to pre-constitutional statutes, but we must remember that this is a provision that has already been upheld by the courts, so you would still think there's a presumption of constitutionality there. So which then means that perhaps granting a blanket stay of the provision might have brought with it its own set of problems. So this is some sort of a via media, really, where the court, based on the government's affidavit, has uh, sort of implored governments almost to not take any action and has also sort of given express directions to magistrates and other uh, courts that are hearing petitions for bail, etc., where sedition is invoked to consider the uh, order that has now been passed and accordingly uh, grant directions for bail. So it's a virtual stay in the sense that I think that if a government, whether a state government or the union government, were to invoke 124A, then it would uh, certainly be uh, something which. Uh, perhaps in a uh, suitable petition before a high court or before a, uh, before any other lower court for bail would uh, have to uh, you would have to either uh, lead to the release of the accused on bail and also perhaps a stay of the uh, trial because the court has also put as we know trials that are already pending mm-hmm. in abeyance so yeah. uh, which the only question there is what about trials that are to happen they put pending trials specifically in abeyance, but what about fresh trials? So I think the natural consequence of saying that trials will be in abeyance. We, we hope and we, I think we hope and implore or, or we hope and expect that, that uh, you know, no fresh cases will be registered. That's right. Yeah. So I think one really has to read that language as constituting a, a stay of the provision to that extent. But, uh, you know, I mean, not all language from the courts need to be expressly directory. Uh, perhaps it's at some levels, uh, uh, you know, showing some amount of deference to governments, uh, but at the same time telling the governments that, uh, I mean, do not invoke this because if you are going to invoke, then it's it's something which will open up the uh, proceeding for a stay by a, by a court uh, based on this order of the Supreme Court. Uh, I mean, th- this isn't ideal, right? In the sense, ideally, you want, I think, a full-fledged hearing of the matter perhaps a constitution of a seven-judge bench and a reconsideration of Kedarnath Singh and, you know, consigning, as I said, Kedarnath Singh to history and striking down 124A as unconstitutional because it is, as you said in your introduction, quite evidently unconstitutional. So in 
the ideal scenario you want the court to do that. But uh, we've hardly had a constitutional bench hearing. Uh, you know, I, I don't think we've had one in recent times. So, uh, but that's uh, perhaps the need of the hour, really, in some sense. Yeah, no, I mean, so um, you know, you and I have both in the past been critical of judgments of of courts, and one of the points of criticism that you know we have focused on has been um, either the absence of reasoning or insufficient reasoning to justify what the courts are doing. And you know, when I look at this order, um, it strikes me that there are a few things going on here. One is that whether we like it or not, and we don't like it, but the fact is that there, at this point of time, there exists a five-judge bench decision in Kedarnath Singh that upheld the constitutionality of sedition. Right. Um, so that and that exists as binding law. The standard for staying a legal provision, specifically a criminal legal provision, is pretty high. I think there has to the court has to be convinced that there is almost no chance that it would be upheld on a full budget hearing. That's when it actually stays a legislative provision. So in that case, I, what I would expect would be in the order for some substantive argument made by the court that justifies what you call a virtual stay. What we find is, or the court says, is that there has been abuse of this provision. That's what the petitioners say. Government agrees there is abuse. They have given an example of the sedition law being abused. Therefore, it follows that until the government reconsiders this provision, let there be no the proceedings. And then I think that in all those cases where provisions that were notoriously abused um, were taken to court, Tada is, immediately comes to my mind, the Tada case, uh, Kartar Singh. And the court says, you know, abuse of a provision is no ground for declaring it unconstitutional. Um, if a provision is abused, your remedy lies with, you know, in the normal appeals process. So it seems to me that Abuse is not a ground to strike down a constitutional provision, but seems to be a ground to virtually state, which to me seems inconsistent. Um, and in that sense, I'm wondering that, you know, um, in most cases, the uh, in, insufficient reasoning in a judgment tends to you know, benefit uh, the, the state. Um, yeah, that factual claims made by the state are not given adequate scrutiny and so on. Uh, it seems to be in this case that uh, insufficient reasoning is benefiting the cause of, of civil rights. Uh, and, and I wonder if, if you think, A, this is a fair criticism of the order, um, and B, if it should change the way we look at this order, given that you know the court is probably attempting a, a pragmatic, judicially crafted um, solution to a problem. And for that reason, you know, our maybe perhaps somewhat more formalistic critique of when a stay should be granted and when not should be put on hold, given the circumstances here. Uh, I was wondering what, what do you think about that? Yeah, I mean, I, I mean, I, I agree entirely with you in the sense that I think there is an element of uh, absence of reason in the order in terms of why the court is really doing this. And in ordinary circumstances, uh, one would be uh, sort of wary of an order which doesn't supply sufficient reasoning. Uh, but I, the only reason perhaps uh, why I'm uh, you know, willing to give the court 
uh, some amount of leeway here in the sense of uh, why I think we can uh, uh, almost look at this a little differently is because the government did file an affidavit here. Of course, it wasn't each of the state governments that mm. filed an affidavit, but mm. but at least it's it's ultimately a union law. Mm. In a sense. It's a parliamentary legislation. Mm. And you had at least one executive government, which is the union government, filing an affidavit in the court saying that it's willing to reconsider the provision. And in fact, it's uh, almost already in the process of doing so. Mm. Mm. And it is to that extent a concession and an order which is passed almost in uh, with consent. Mm. Uh, and that's how the court has worded it. And perhaps that's the only reason why we can see this as an acceptable solution for the present. But I think, as I said, this isn't ideal. Uh, this isn't ideal from the point of view of uh, jurisprudence, from the point of view of uh, the court creating precedent. Uh, and uh, I, uh, ultimately, we have to see the Supreme Court as a constitutional court, which uh, will have to approach decision making in a principled manner. And perhaps this might have taken an additional three months or six months or nine months or whatever it is. Mm. And uh, maybe uh, in the interests of uh, sort of jurisprudential clarity, the court needed to take that time to right. settle the law. And uh, so, so to that extent, your criticism is certainly fair. And I and I don't see why it's not fair. But I, the only reason why I think the court uh, chose to do this was its job was made a bit easy uh, right. almost through this. Yeah, I mean, I think this is one of those things where really you know, we'll be coming back to this, I think, in the in the weeks yeah. and months to come, potentially. Uh, I, I think it's far from settled, right? I, uh, we go, we, uh, one, the matter is going to be listed again, and uh, we'll have to see what the government says on that occasion. Uh, in July. With, yeah, in July. And uh, when this reconsideration exercise ultimately happens, uh, I, 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 do you really expect a complete repeal of 124A? Perhaps not. I'm sure it's going to be uh, reworded in some way, perhaps, and uh, it will still require consideration. You know, I'm, I'm not actually sure, and, and I think I think we'll we'll. I just want to flag one thing on that point, and we'll move on to something else. Um, I actually wouldn't be all that surprised, even if sedition was repealed, for the reason that the state has far more, shall we say, stringent laws it can use. Just yesterday, uh, I was following the live tweets, uh, bail hearing of, of Umar Khalid in the Delhi High Court. And uh, and they came to the point, as as happens in every bail hearing under the UAPA, where the Supreme Court judgment in Vatali, you know, starts to be discussed. Um, and Vatali is this judgment where the Supreme Court effectively said that um, in a UAPA bail hearing, there is very, very limited degree of scrutiny that the court can can um, place upon the prosecution's material. Uh, and what you see then is that whenever a trial court or a high court um, is inclined to deny bail in a UAPA case, uh, they immediately invoke Vatali, right? Um, and then you have people in jail for many, many years without trial. And so given that entire apparatus, um, I'm not even entirely sure whether either the repeal or the striking down of sedition would significantly advance the cause of civil rights right now. And I think, again, it depends a lot on how it's repealed. If there's a judgment that interprets constitutional provisions in a way that has a knock-on effect on other laws and so on. But I think that all of that as well is something very much in the background. And I think the, the uh, danger or perhaps the apprehension that at least I have 
is that at the end of the day, sedition will be gone, but it will be a pyrrhic or a symbolic victory. That we'll, 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 yeah, I guess we will know, we'll know in due course, uh, seeing how, how this evolves. Um, I, want to, I, want to, I want to go on to, speaking of judicial reasoning, right? Um, let's go on to these two big tax judgments um, that happened in this, um, in this last month. Um, the first is in the beginning of the month, uh, is um, on 4th of May, Union of India versus Ashish Agarwal, which is a very, very striking judgment because um, what happened there was that um, there was a, a provision that allowed for, you know, a certain degree of number of years to pass um, until when the revenue could reopen uh, an assessment. That provision was replaced by another provision because of the pandemic. But the revenue kept on um, sending notices under the old extinct uh, provision, which had no legal existence. And um, then this case was filed and the case had the Supreme Court. And the Supreme Court um, effectively deploys this uh, article called Article 142, which allows it to do complete justice in any case before it, and says, but actually, we will deem all these um, notices to be legally valid. You, you're the tax expert here, but it's this. This strikes me as a case where you know a, a team wins a football match 3-0, and at the end of the match, um, the PGMOL, the Association of Referees, um, you know, uh, who do this stuff, they say, but actually, uh, the offside rule wasn't in operation during this game. And therefore, the other team who had scored four offside offside goals actually has won four three in retrospect. Um, can you like shed some light on on what happened in this case? Yeah. Uh, so let me just sort of start with a little clarification on the facts. Uh, you know, you had one provision of the Income Tax Act uh, of the year 1962, which has been repeatedly invoked. It's been subject to a whole lot of litigation. This is Section 147, uh, through which the Income Tax Department reopens completed assessments. And these are often assessments that have already gone through a process of intense scrutiny. So uh, they reopen them because they believe there's some income that has escaped assessment. And, and perhaps this is a power that has to exist, albeit at a limited level, uh, to ensure that uh, the government doesn't lose revenue where people have either evaded taxes by not supplying full information to the department or they've hidden something from the department uh, and so forth. But but it's a provision of law that's been that over the years has been subject to a whole lot of litigation through the high courts all the way to the Supreme Court. And in April 2021, uh, with through the new Finance Act of 2021, the union government replaced this parliament replaced this earlier provision, that is uh, section 147 to 153 of the act. It's almost like one sort of code with a new set of provisions, which changed the procedure substantially. It also changed the timelines for when they could do this uh, substantially. And uh, the belief was that this would reduce litigation, uh, ironically. And but what happened is in the meantime, for the previous years, you had uh, you know, because of COVID, uh, a number of uh, notices that needed to be issued could not be issued under the old provision. And the government, the P parliament again brought a separate law called the Taxation and Other Provisions Act, 
uh, where it relaxed a number of uh, provisions in the act and gave sort of benefits both to SSEs and to the revenue, and it extended timelines uh, under the Income Tax Act. But what it did was when the Central Board of Direct Taxes issued notifications for extensions of time after the 1st of April 2021, it was extending time under a statute, under a provision of a statute that no longer existed. And that provision was not extended separately by Parliament. There was, uh, uh, and, and the Finance Act, when the when Parliament enacted the Finance Act in 2021, it was quite conscious of these expiry and time limits. But despite that, these uh, notifications went ahead and issued uh, uh, orders extending time limits under a provision of law that no longer existed. And as we all know, when a law is substituted or repealed, the effect is that it ceases to exist on the statute books. It's, uh, you know, uh, obliterated from the statute books. And that's the word that has uh, often been used by the Supreme Court to describe the effect of a substitution or a repeal. But because of this notification, you had the income tax department issuing a slew of notices to, I believe they issued in excess of 90,000 notices or some such number, the Supreme Court mentions it in the order, to various assessees under, under the old provision of law that no longer exists. And there were challenges mounted to this across the country. Uh, there were challenges before the Rajasthan High Court, Allahabad, Bombay, Delhi, Calcutta, Madras, Punjab and Haryana, I mean, virtually every High Court saw challenges. And initially interim orders of stay were granted. Then ultimately some high courts granted, uh, you know, uh, passed final orders allowing these writ petitions saying that this can't be done. You know, you, if you can issue notices under the new provision of law if you still have time to do so. But under the old provision, it's no longer on the statute books. So you can't have a tax without authority of law. That's what Article 265 says. So these notices were quashed. And you had judgments from the Allahabad High Court, the Bombay High Court, Delhi High Court, Madras, Calcutta, among others, which finally heard and passed orders. But the revenue took only one or two of these writ petitions from the Allahabad High Court before the Supreme Court, where I think uh, some of those assessees were either on caveat or uh, they were on notice and the notice was ordered to them. And ultimately, those assessees alone were heard and the Supreme Court passed this order in exercise, it said, of its powers under Article 142 to say that, look, these notices were certainly issued without authority of law, but the court will now provide that authority by saying that let it be deemed to be issued under the new provision of law. And what the court was additionally also doing was that this judgment was applied not only to the Allahabad High Court writs which were on appeal before the Supreme Court, but across the spectrum to all the high court judgments without even hearing the SSEs uh, that were, uh, you know, that uh, had succeeded before those courts and and also to cases which were not even uh, challenged before the high court. So you had this sort of blanket order issued under Article 142. And look, this I uh, and I must also sort of uh, caveat my arguments on the Supreme Court order to a certain extent because I was involved in uh, some of the matters that uh, the Madras High Court heard. Uh, so to that extent, you can filter my views for any bias. But I, I don't think uh, Article 142 is 
meant for this purpose. It certainly exists in the constitution for a reason. And we might want to just spend a little bit of time uh, just looking at 142 for a second. Uh, 142 broadly says that the Supreme Court can pass any order if it wants to do complete justice in a cause or matter that is pending before it. And we've had a number of judgments of the Supreme Court uh, where the court has clarified the scope and ambit of 142. And, and I think at least two limitations are uh, can be seen from those judgments. One is that the clause can really only be applied to parties that are before the court. And second, that you can't, the court still cannot pass orders that are in conflict with statutory law. And I think in this case, uh, the judgment of the Supreme Court uh, ignores both of these uh, limitations in that it has passed an order under 142, which also applies to parties that were not before it. And it I think quite clearly is contrary to the provision, uh, uh, quite clearly contrary to statutory law, because you have a case here where notices were issued under a provision of law that doesn't exist. And also, uh, you know, this has been subject to a lot of discussion since then. There have been, uh, especially in the sort of tax uh, experts, chartered accountants, lawyers, etc., have written quite extensively on the upshot of the judgment, which where I think it's led to quite a bit of uh, confusion in terms of limitation that will now be applicable under by through a consequence of the court holding that these notices will be deemed to have been issued under the new law and it's uh, already litigation is afoot before the high courts on some of these uh, points and and i think that, look there, there was al always a solution for this right assuming that there was a great amount of revenue loss that was caused by what was an incorrect application of law. Parliament could have amended the law, could have retrospectively amended the law. But we all know that on the back of uh, all of the troubles that uh, the government had with the Vodafone case and the Kane Energy case, the, the government said that it will no longer retrospectively uh, pass tax taxation laws. So perhaps the government was uh, wary of doing so. I thought, I thought that's not does is that they they pass a retrospective law and then claim that it's actually just clarifying the law. So it's not really retrospective; it's just clarifying what was always there. At least that was the defense used in Cairn and yeah, was, in Cairn and Waterford. Yeah, and that, 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 even, so you know, so just like disclosing that as well. Yeah, and that defense wouldn't have been applicable to this case had the government chosen to go down the right. retrospective route. But even assuming that defense isn't available, you can, it still has the power to pass such a law. And that's, and that's really the only solution. And, and, and I think that when you don't allow parliament to do that, and when the court sort of steps in to pass directions of this kind, it's, it's often some of these points which are, uh, you know, uh, uh, which, which ought to be considered in terms of limitation, in terms of some of the other intricate requirements, they, they go, they go missing to a certain extent. And and I think the ideal solution, if if a solution was needed in this case, would have been legislative, and uh, no doubt that would have led to its own kind of uh, yeah. you know series of litigations on that. That law would have been challenged, all of that. But I but I don't think that should be the lookout of the courts. I mean, and and, and as I said, uh, you know, I, I was involved in this litigation, so perhaps my views are affected by that to a certain extent. But I don't think that Article 142 was really meant for cases of this sort. Yeah, you know, just taking a step back and, you know, I think looking at 142 from a, you know, commonsensical point of view and looking at its history as well, 
I think it's very clear what its purpose was meant to be. It was meant to be, in certain cases, for the Supreme Court to temporarily act as a court of equity, where you know certain legal provisions were not enough for it to do justice. And I'm thinking of, say, a matrimonial case before it, uh, you know, a case of that kind where you need some kind of crafting of relief between two parties um, that the law does not strictly allow you to to do. Um, and so you you complement the gap in law by you know exercising what is if basically an equity jurisdiction, um, and you you and 142 is the source of, um, of of that power. I think that it's very clear that those were the kinds of cases that um, the framers of the constitution had in mind. Um, although I will say I will say that that the two the two characteristics you mentioned one. One of which being that the that um, one one exercise of one forty two has to be limited to the parties before the court. I feel that that ship has, has long sailed. Um, you know, in a, in a series of cases <laughs> where the court has effectively made made literal law um, under one forty two. The most recent of it being last week actually, and this is a case that I I, I haven't flagged for our discussion today because I think that there are many um, issues in it that will only be clarified in the next hearing. But this is the Buddhadev Karmaskar case where the Supreme Court passed a slew of directions uh, regarding the rights of sex workers under Article 142 and said that, uh, that that these directions will hold the field as law until Parliament sees fit to make law. Um, but uh, you know, I, but perhaps we can discuss that on the you know after the next hearing when a number of other issues um, will be um, decided. Uh, where the government has made certain objections. So though, those the court has not yet uh, passed orders on in that case, and I think they are pretty much the most important um, parts of, of this litigation on the rights of, of sex workers. So we'll, we'll come back to that. Um, of course, the court also used 142 recently in the Pedarivalan uh, order. Yes, and yes, yeah, yeah. Uh, but there again, your, your critique is that in releasing um, the convict, it did not need to use 142. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I. It, it's perhaps. It's. I mean. I mean. Perhaps I'm quibbling with. Uh, you know. Uh, something which is rather minor in the larger scheme of things, because the court was ultimately seized of the matter under Article 32, which is uh, where the petitioner has to assert a violation of a fundamental right. Yeah. And I think the court had come to a fairly clear conclusion that a fundamental right had been violated, although it didn't quite spell out what that was. Yeah. But having come to that conclusion, then I think it's a matter of fashioning a relief. And perhaps what you say in terms of fashioning a relief has some relevance here, because in the ordinary circumstances, when the governor has failed to act in a manner, uh, you know, in consonance with the constitution or in consonance with some other provision, perhaps the court would remit the matter back mm. to the governor mm. for fresh mm. consideration. Yeah. And it felt that that was a pointless exercise in this case. And therefore, it was that... 142 was being invoked to release him since to send it back to the governor and then to ask him to now uh, pass a fresh order on the uh, government's uh, sort of uh, decision to release him and to kind of rubber stamp the government's mm. uh, 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 decision would have been a pointless and futile exercise. Yeah. And maybe for that reason, 142 is invoked and perhaps that's the reason why it exists at some levels, as you say where it can fashion remedies which to ensure that uh, justice is uh, immediately secured. Yeah, you know, that, that reminds me a bit of that famous New York Times versus Sullivan case where 
the where the Supreme Court of the U.S. was um, was so so clear that its ruling on defamation and free speech would not be fairly implemented by the Alabama courts. That instead of remitting the case back to the Alabama courts to decide, it just decided the case itself. You know, um, so, so I, I guess you're right. That is something that 142 is meant for those kinds of of cases, right? Um, but but I think this is a good segue into our next case on on federalism and tax. But before that, um, do you want to hear a funny story about tax and retrospective validation? Sure. Yeah. So when I was when I was in college in the prehistoric era, um, for uh, reasons that were not known to me then and make even less sense now, I decided to enter the Nani Palkiwala tax law essay writing competition. Um, and uh, the problem was I was in third year and I did not know any tax. So I asked my my seniors, um, you know, can you give me a topic to write on? And one of my seniors said, this write on section nine, sub clause one, sub sub clause seven of the Income Tax Act. You know, that fees for technical services, all of that, that 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 provision. Um, and there was a judgment that had come out um, called Ishika Vajma Harima, um, which had uh, laid down some principles of being a live link between the services and and, uh, uh, and the entity and so on. Uh, so I got very excited by the, and I think mainly because of the name Ishika Vajma Harima, I was, you know, a college kid, I was like, I'll write about this. So I wrote this detailed piece of critiquing the judgment and um, and setting out, you know, my critique of the section, the judgment and proposing interpretation and so on. And I submitted that essay to the Nani Palkiwala essay writing competition. Um, one month after I had submitted, Another of my seniors, who's now practicing tax barrister in Bombay, Mihir, he messaged me saying, uh, dude, uh, have you seen the Finance Act 2007? I said, no. He said, I think you may want to take a look at that. So I took a look at it and it turned out that um, in the Finance Act, the, the parliament had done what parliament does, which is that they had retrospectively invalidated Ishika Vajma Harima uh, and restored the, the old position. And so I basically, much like the much like the revenue in this case was um, issuing notices under non-existent legal provision, I had in detail analyzed a non-existent uh, legal provision and a judgment based on that, and written a 30-page essay on that. Um, as you can probably guess, I did not win the the essay competition, and um, and that was when I felt the need for uh, Article 142. Um, but unfortunately, I don't have <laughs> that far. Anyway, <laughs> that was that was my my brush with um, retrospective amendments, uh, provisions that don't exist, and and tax and the constitution. Um, but <laughs> coming to um, the, I guess I guess the most important judgment of of this month, the GST um, judgment, um, um, where the Supreme Court held three judge bench judgment um, that uh, the the recommendations of the GST Council. Uh, are not binding upon the states. And so state legislatures can, um, you know, uh, enact their own uh, GST laws. I think there are two things here. I think one is the, of course, the issues on tax and the constitution. And the other is uh, a certain story about Indian federalism that this judgment tells. And maybe if you could perhaps explain the first bit, um, and then I'll, I'll use that to riff off on the second bit. Yeah, sure. I mean, I the first bit in the sense that the division of powers, uh, we all know the Constituent Assembly was quite uh, conscious of making reasonably careful and intricate uh, 
divisions of powers between the union and the state governments on, on a variety of subjects. And on tax, it was quite clear to them, almost right from the outset, that uh, the union government will have power to tax any income apart from agricultural income and some other indirect taxes like customs and excise duties were given to the union government. The states, on the other hand, were given the power to tax sale of goods and the entry of goods into a state. And that was placed in the uh, second list of uh, Schedule 7 of the Constitution. And unlike some other areas where uh, you know you have uh, subjects which are placed in the concurrent list where both the union government and the state governments have power to legislate, ta- there are no taxing subjects which are present in the concurrent list at all. So there was a clear division. And in 2016, when the in July, sorry, 2017, when the union government uh, introduced the goods and services tax regime, they sought to sort of undo this entire arrangement. And they undid this arrangement to a certain extent by removing those subjects in this in list two, over which the state government had exclusive power to legislate. And uh, they sort of all, altogether removed them from schedule uh, from schedule seven list two, which is things like sale of goods and entry of goods into a state and, and the power to tax on those subjects. And what they instead did was they brought in a new provision of law, a new provision in the Constitution, which is Article 246A. And this provision begins with a non-obstante clause in the sense that it overrides the power that is generally vested both in parliament and the state legislatures under article 246 and it says that the union that is parliament and the state legislatures will both have the power to make laws with respect to goods and services tax and of course in a separate clause that was inserted in the definitions clause of the constitution goods and services tax was defined and this sort of co-equal power was granted both to the parliament and the state legislatures and apart from this a gst council was established and this was done through article 270a of the constitution uh, 279a sorry and uh, this 279a basically said that the gst council will comprise the union finance minister, the union minister of state for revenue, and the various different uh, ministers from various different state governments who either hold the finance portfolio or who've been nominated by the state government to represent them in the GST council. And then it goes on to add that the GST council will make what the clause refers to as recommendations to both the union government and the state governments on various different matters. These will include the recommendation of a model GST law and also what taxes should be levied by the union, what taxes should be levied by the state, what should be the rate of taxation and and so on and so forth. Now, uh, there's also a separate dispute resolution mechanism that is uh, sought to be uh, that, that the constitution mandates government to create uh, to resolve any disputes that might occur as a result of a decision taken by the GST Council. Now, the other important thing to bear in mind is that the decision of the GST Council itself is uh, sort of taken on a lopsided basis where the union government, by virtue of the design that is 
put in place into Article 279A, the union government enjoys a virtual veto over any decision that's taken. So you can't have a decision which the union government disagrees with being passed by the GST Council. So which then means that these, the question then arises as to whether these recommendations are binding or not. Now, after the 101st Amendment became law, the GST Council's recommendations were largely seen as binding in nature. The reason is that if you don't see them as binding, then you can't really have this idea of one nation, one tax, right? You'll have state governments uh, doing their own thing where they don't go by what the GST Council's advice is. And just, they may not... I just, not, do, I just yeah. want to quickly stop you there and ask one yeah. question, which is that you'd still have... The central government would still have a range of methods at its disposal to ensure unanimity, right? Because if you look at the history of state government, central government transfers, right? I mean, technically, they are meant to go through the Finance Commission, which technically is meant to be a non-partisan independent body. Uh, but the history of, of transfers, you know, you all, right from the beginning, you had the Planning Commission, non-statutory body um, that took, you know, a large bulk of, of um, responsibility for those transfers. And if you if you if you read this great book um, by um, I think uh, Govinda Rao um, and one other forgotten the name, but it's called the Political Economy of Indian Federalism, um, where they point out that over time the central government has perfected the art. Successive governments have perfected the art of leveraging the their dominant position financially and so on to make states fall in line on a whole host of issues, whatever the text of the constitution says. So I'm just wondering if, you know, uh, treating the GST Council's recommendations as formally binding um, or not would have the kind of ripple effect or cascade effect in destroying the idea of one nation, one tax as, as, you, as you foresee. Yeah, see, the answer to that is that the revenue sharing, that is the distribution between the union and the states, uh, which I think is guided by Article 270, that yeah. deals, uh, and prior to the GST regime, that dealt with taxes collected by the union, mm. right? Which then had to be shared and distributed between the union and the states. And now after GST, again, it also includes the sharing of GST. But what happens when a state makes its own GST law completely, uh, uh, you know, contrary to what the recommendation of the GST council might be, is a reversion to the earlier regime under the VAT laws, where right. states each had their own VAT law and they mm. collected their own revenue. Right? They didn't. This was not revenue that was collected by the union and then distributed to the states. Mm. So the question of revenue sharing then becomes moot insofar as GST is concerned, if the states were to go down this route. But I'm, right. of course, it's an extreme route, which and I and I don't think the state government will necessarily do that now. But mm. if it's not binding, then at least it allows the state government uh, some amount of a you know, bargaining power before right. the GST comes to say that, look, you know, we are inclined to disagree with you. And if, uh, uh, you know, if we don't arrive at some sort of consensus on this, then we'll do our own thing because we have the power to do so. Right. And then that would have, I think, created that would perhaps lead to a more balanced uh, deliberation between the union and the states and between states, for that matter, mm -hmm. in the GST council. But because we, ha you know, wanted to we saw the GST as this sort of putting in place a one nation, one tax regime. The GST Council's recommendations were seen as binding, which right. then meant that 
whatever model law was suggested was enacted by the state legislatures and you had uh, uniformity in these laws across the country mm-hmm. and uh, uh, look I, I i mean neither of us at, at least certainly i'm not an expert in terms of arguing on the relative merits of gst law and the you know and the or the relative demerits of a having a single market etc these are uh, discussions for uh, perhaps people who have a certain amount of knowledge on those areas to uh, deliberate on but what i can say is that the idea of a federal compact where hmm. states have been vested with a sovereign power to tax certain subjects if that power is removed then i think that would certainly violate the basic structure of the constitution and that's the reason why we have this basic structure doctrine right we have it to ensure that some of these features that underline the constitution which are so critical to its functioning aren't disturbed and that federal compact and the sovereign power to tax is is certainly something that the state governments can't be asked to forego and if they did for if they do forego that then they are effectively foregoing a power which i think is uh, basic to the constitution itself and uh, which is what the union appeared to argue before the supreme court they sort of tried to argue that this is similar to what countries might have done uh, you know in coming together to form the european union where hmm. they effectively cede hmm. sovereignty hmm. to a certain extent and that the states had given up their power to legislate independently on uh, the sale of goods and on on taxing the sale of goods and that ceding of power is something which is according to, which was according to the union uh, an inherent sort of uh, part of the gst model which was introduced through these uh, constitutional amendments so I, as i see it if you see the gst council's recommendations as binding then that federal arrangement collapses and the moment that federal arrangement collapses it violates basic structure now the supreme court in considering uh, this issue doesn't really get into basic structure mm. but what it does say is that ultimately the word used in 279a is recommendations and because it's it uses the word recommendations you can't see it as binding mm. and uh, and because the central government has a virtual veto again you can't see it as binding because this means that states lose their power to legislate yeah. independently and on a reading of this 246a which is again one of the new provisions introduced by the 101st amendment it says that parliament and the legislature of every state has the power to make laws so it's a simultaneous power simultaneous and independent power and that power can't be negated through uh, certainly not through a reading of the provision as it stands today is what the supreme court holds yeah i mean i, I you know I, i think i think that's great and i you know it's a great description and i want to perhaps just contextualize that a bit more as i said in this ongoing story about indian federalism which is that you know as as we know as everyone knows the indian constitution federal arrangement is what people call biased towards the center right so you know there are a number of provisions the, you, the boundaries of states can be changed altered modified erased uh, simply requires a law and only consultation with the affected state that itself has been diluted in a number of judgments um, like babulal parate for example residuary taxation powers with the center doctrine of repugnance and so on emergency powers all of that and there were reasons why these provisions were introduced into the constitution at the time of the framing 
scholarship, you read scholarship, there were many reasons, unified political economy, success, fears of secession, and so on. And so what you had was a constitution that had various provisions that were skewed towards the center and a lot of silences as well. And so the question then then was, how would you interpret those silences where there was a dispute between the, between the state of one or more states and the center? And starting with state of West Bengal versus Union of India, the Supreme Court does what to me is a somewhat strange interpretive move but it says that the fact that the Indian constitution has a central bias is reason for interpreting constitutional silences or ambiguities in favor of the center. So it basically takes the central bias of the constitution and turns it into a centralizing drift, so to say, where, you know, because the constitution is skewed one way, Therefore, let's entrench that skew even further when there's a dispute. And it justifies that in the majority judgment, which is a beautiful dissent by Justice Subbara in that case, it justifies that by a very ahistorical reading of federalism in India pre-independence. Basically says that, uh, you know, this is not like the US where independent states came together and created a federation. It's actually power shifted from the British to the people as an entity. And the people then gave it back to the Union and the states. Um, and both in his dissent, uh, Mr. Subbarao, and Sirvai, in his critique of, of this judgment, says that's historical. If you actually look at the history of federalism, first you had the states. You know, uh, you had various provinces, provincial governments, provincial legislatures, and then you had like the centers. So there's a completely different historical story being told there. Um, and I think that, that ever since the state of in this, this reflexive uh, because our country has a central bias. It's not a true federation. And therefore, whenever the dispute center the state, where you have possible conflict, you will go to the center. Uh, all of that is effectively in service of that uh, understanding. And I think that in that sense, um, this judgment subtext um, pushes back against that by saying, look, actually, um, the fact that you have provisions in the constitution that are biased towards the center uh, doesn't mean that whenever you have a dispute where two interpretations are possible, uh, you go to the center. In fact, you should go the other way around, which is that clearly the intention is that where the framers wanted to depart from a more egalitarian balancing of powers, they introduced explicit provisions into the constitution to signify that departure. And that means that where they haven't done so, where they remain ambiguities, you actually interpret the constitution to favor federalism, right? to favor states' powers or states' rights. Um, because you don't further entrench a skew by taking it you know, even, even, even more in that direction. Uh, but I think in, in, in that way, this is still a very, it's almost an outlier kind of a view because the dominant view is still uh, an almost reflexive view that look at the constitution, look at all these vast central powers. Clearly, the idea was that, you know, power has to be by default with the center. Uh, and I think it'll be interesting to see if it's almost an invitation that this judgment offers up 
towards starting a rethink of federal principles uh, if that's taken forward by the court you know in future cases yeah and i think the only uh, i mean and that's an excellent way of putting it in the sense of saying that where two interpretations are possible to see, to see whether you always need to interpret it uh, in line with a you know in line uh, tilting the power towards the union so to speak but of course i think this was a case where two interpretations were not really possible right i i, I think right. this was a case where the only interpretation pointed to the fact that uh, the state governments did have equal power and uh, perhaps it would be interesting to see in cases where two interpretations are possible how the court chooses to uh, read it and uh, but with this judgment as you rightly say sort of potentially leads to a path where that kind of thinking can be adopted because the court specifically points to this centralizing drift mm. and says that there are certain provisions where that centralizing drift is evident from the yeah. text yeah. of the constitution itself whereas there are other provisions where there could either be equal power or perhaps there might even be you know law power that's uh, uh, that greater where greater power vests with the state yeah 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 Yeah, no, I think I think yeah, I think there's a lot that it leaves open for for thought and discussion going forward. So we are almost out of time. Um, I just before we leave, I just want to, you know, I, I don't think we should we should leave this one out because I think it's very important. Uh, marital rape judgment of the Delhi High Court. Uh, look, uh, I, I don't think there's any point to to discussing the extensive um, comments that judges make on marriage, uh, you know, and various things. I think that that you know people will read that and draw their own conclusions from that. Um, I just wanted to raise one point and I maybe you know and maybe if you can just respond to this in in a minute or so this argument that striking down an immunity right which is that there is the defined offense of rape and then there is the immunity that even if all the ingredients of rape are fulfilled uh, if the perpetrator is a married man uh, then it is not rape uh, you know uh, whether the court striking down that immunity effectively amounts to creating a new offense and if that's something a court can't do uh, because i mean there have been strong views on both sides on this and i think that that it's it's a close issue i you know it's it's there are arguments on both sides so i was wondering what you think um, whether you think that striking down the marital rape exception um, in effect creates a new offense and if that's something that the court should be doing or if it's something parliament should do uh I actually don't think it creates a new offense right the offense is of rape and yeah. uh, if we see it that way then it shouldn't then I don't think that removing the exception creates a new offense at all it merely clarifies what the offense really is and uh, it because any other solution is unequal and uh, to I I don't think this is a case where uh, there is any sort of classification that's reasonable at all and the exception is uh, on the face of it uh unreasonable and unjust and uh, you know i think wholly contrary to uh, the i i i think uh, all sense of ethics and morals and, and and certainly contrary to the constitutional provisions and once the court finds that a provision of law whether it's an exception or a proviso or any provision of statutory mm-hmm. law once it finds that it's in violation of the constitution at the least it calls for a declaration Mm, right right now perhaps uh, perhaps if the court so you know felt inclined to think that this would amount to the creation of a new offense and therefore it doesn't want to do so mm. the 
judge could have still held that this is unconstitutional yeah. and then placed it before parliament to respond to that and 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 you know uh, remove the exception formally and i'm, I'm just saying that, that that option was still open they still didn't yeah, you know i i think it's really interesting i think i, I want to i think i will close with this um i think one thing that you see is the the limitations of what we take to be the classical judicial review model which is the court has one of two options strike down or uphold you know i think that that often puts the court in almost an unfair bind which leads us to have decisions like the split judgment we had with a lot of i think strained reasoning because were this case for example say in south africa right where you have this entire remedy of uh, what they call a suspended declaration of invalidity where you can declare a provision to be invalid and then say okay we are going to give parliament 6 months 1 year 2 years to correct the defect and therefore our declaration of unconstitutionality will only go into effect 6 months from now if parliament fails to remove that defect that then gives parliament a chance to actually then say for example in this case to consider a range of options you know evidentiary rules sentencing uh gender neutral rape laws like a whole bunch of things that the court obviously can't do um but it it gives the court that that way out right where in cases where both striking down and upholding seem to have a range of problems um and i was reading roberto gargarella's book yesterday's latest book um and he says like he talks about how this binary of striking down and uh upholding actually creates a lot of democratic damage because it just takes a range of options out of the courts arena and in, that actually means that often you end up with the court upholding a lot more you know kind of uh, unconstitutional laws because striking down seems a step too far um well perhaps you know maybe 142 is is the answer there <laughs> i think um on on that note we'll stop uh, thanks so much for for joining me today and um you know i think we'll find out if um if this inaugural um edition of the concast will also be the final edition i think that will depend upon how we have done in the last one hour so no no pressure but i i do hope to see you back again you know talking about yeah the constitution and the court so thanks a lot thank you gautam thank you for listening to the concast the podcast about the indian constitution the supreme court and beyond This podcast is hosted by the Indian Constitutional Law and Philosophy blog. So if you liked it, do head over there and subscribe. Thank you once again and until next time, take it easy.